Hey there, before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to give a brief announcement about some exciting news for our podcast. So this week we got on to Apple Podcasts after our somewhat tumultuous experience of getting rejected because I <laughs> had forgotten to include a, a tag in our RSS feed. It was a very trivial problem. But finally, we are on Apple Podcasts, which is exciting because Apple Podcasts is the biggest podcast network. Um, they have about 70% of podcast listeners today. So if you've changed the way that you think about the world in any way as a result of this podcast, we would really appreciate if you went on Apple Podcasts and left a review. When you join Apple Podcasts, new podcasts only have about two months to make it onto the new and noteworthy list, which is one of the biggest ways to expand your audience. And the only way to get that is by getting as many five-star reviews as possible. So it would really help us out if you went on Apple Podcasts and left us a review. And if you subscribe, you can get automatic updates when we post every Wednesday. So, yeah, leave us a review. I did not realize that Uncle Sam was a real person. I thought that was a fictional no, thing. He's not. What? He, what are you talking about then? So I, I said uh, <laughs> Einstein was working for Uncle Sam. I meant the Einstein government. was working for the United States government. Oh. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, Isabel. You're not you're not the first person who has thought that in our long history as Americans. Wow, that's so. drastically embarrassing for you. This 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 might be a good reason for you to go start studying American history. Please no. keep this in. So today we have a really exciting episode for you guys. Um Basically, one of the things that we wanted to do in this second season is is just start talking to more guests. And today we're actually talking to the first guest uh, that is not a personal friend of ours. Our goal has been kind of to find people who are not necessarily like disagree with us, but are in some way have a different mindset than we do. So we were like, okay, let's talk to a conservative. Let's talk to a vegan. Like, let's talk to, that's all we have so far. But, <laughs> but we're I do know a few conservative vegans if you guys need help finding some of those. Really? <laughs> wow. I don't think of conservatism and veganism no, as going together. All. Right. <laughs> it's weird, man. It's weird. Yeah. So. So, so today on our show, we have Luke Phillips, who is a, an editor at Better Angels, which is actually how I found him. Um, I also organize or help volunteer for Better Angels, which is this organization that's trying to kind of uh, address polarization in America and, and kind of bring people in conversation together across the aisle. So why, do, why don't we just let you give your own introduction and just tell us what, what kind of things would be important to know about you? Sure. Well, uh, long ago in the beginning, God said, let there be light. Just kidding. <laughs> so, hi, guys. Uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm honored to be your guys' very first uh, out-of-network guest. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here on the mic with you guys. So, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Luke Phillips. I am a, uh, a editor, freelance writer, sometime political activist, sometime archival researcher. I do a lot of things and wear a lot of hats. Um, I am the editor, though, for Better Angels' opinion page, and so in that uh, capacity, I do a lot to uh, solicit and curate articles from a diverse array of people uh, from all kinds of political backdrops in America and uh, help kind of mo uh, like both moderate and kind of showcase uh, what a respectful discourse between people who really severely disagree with each other but can still see each other as fellow Americans, what that looks like in the written word space. 
Um, so, and aside from that, uh, I do night shifts at the Hamilton restaurant down in Washington, D.C., and I'm a tour guide during the day. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about patriotism. And that's a topic that, honestly, I have not, prior to the articles that Luke sent over, really put a lot of thought into. So it was really interesting to read about and kind of form some opinions on. So I think we should start off by just talking about, in your opinion, or what patriotism is when you talk about it. Sure. So I think... The average American, when they think patriotism, they think like barbecues, hot dogs, 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence, maybe Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, maybe the Washington Monument, stuff about like uh, symbols of America and why it's a good thing, right? It's a very emotional thing at a, at a level for a lot of people. It's a very, um, it, you could call it love, but you could also call it maybe like affection is uh, is a better way to put it, like affection for your country. And it's not necessarily a rah-rah-rah kind of affection. It's not necessarily a jingoistic, yeah, we're so much better than everyone else, so much, though it definitely can take those forms. Uh, but I think the, like the average um, person, when you ask them about like, uh, are you feeling patriotic today? And they put it on their Snapchat filters kind of thing. And they're, they're almost a little bit ironic about it. You know, like uh, uh, Stephen Colbert with the Eagles and stuff like that. So it's, it, it's, it's something that, is, that, that marks off where you live. And that says something about you, but it's not necessarily something that is an end-all be-all that defines everything about your existence. It's a, it's a part of your identity that can be there. So is that a sufficiently nebulous description to get the conversation going? Yeah. I mean, do you identify as a patriot, I guess? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, um, I definitely do get all teary-eyed at like 4th of July parades and stuff. And uh, every year here in D.C. on Memorial Day, um, there's a Memorial Day parade where they have like people from like people dressed up in different American historical outfits and then all the veterans marching down Constitution Avenue and stuff like that. So I, uh, at, a, at an affectionate level, I get get it there. But my patriotism is more, I think, at a kind of level of like an intellectual choice that has turned into a, an emotional connection over time, if that makes sense. So you know? are you saying that like you decided one day, to sort of interrogate what patriotism meant to you. And then from there, you be, you started identifying as a patriot. I think it's kind of like that, but extend that one day over the course of three or four years. For sure. It's been like a, a process. Yeah. 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 And, and that's kind of how it, how it turned out. You know, I think like, uh, so, so I grew up in a fairly conservative family. I, uh, my dad was in the Navy. My mom's an immigrant from the Philippines. And so like their foundation was the Reagan era and like all the morning in America kind of stuff, unquestioning patriotism, all that kind of thing. Right. I came into my own political kind of formulation sometime in between 2010 and 2012, uh, when there were a lot of questions about the stability of American economics, the stability of American political order coming up to, uh, up to the fore. And so that was when I started studying politics a lot. And I don't think I really started to really truly appreciate the magnitude of what Americans have accomplished in the last couple centuries until I started thinking and studying and pulling myself out of just the affectionate kind of patriotism and trying to think more deeply about what exactly am I saying I love when I go and mindlessly uh, like wave flags around and say, I like America, you know? And so it was that process that, to be honest, I'm still in as we speak right now. 
um, that really like made made for me to start defining myself as an American patriot before just like uh, a Republican or a Democrat or a uh, resident of whatever part of the country I was living in at the time. So wow, that is so just the not the opposite of my experience, but I just don't have any kind of emotional connection in the way that you describe to that particular like identity of like being an American. But I mean, I also don't feel that kind of, of connection to any of the other identifiers I have. Like I, there's some people who feel really strongly about like I'm a woman or like in my case, I'm like Chinese or whatever. And those things also don't really like, I don't really care about those things either, but that's interesting to hear that's such a visceral thing for you in that way. It, it seems to me that we're all in multiple identities, right? We're for all sure. inhabiting a world where we uh, play different roles for different groups. And, but then there are very many different temperaments that you can have towards it, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with not feeling particularly strongly towards uh, to, uh, towards anything. It's just that the kind of way that maybe I was dropped on my head when I was little or something like that. But like I, I like strong feelings of identification with organizations and kind of identities that shape me is just kind of one of the ways that I, so 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 I say all this to say that um, I think there's a lot of people like me for whom affiliation sometimes with their home state like I know Texans are like this even Californians and especially people from Los Angeles where I went to school are really proud of wherever they're from and then also a lot of people from immigrant diasporas too um, in this mm -hmm. country like especially uh, Italian Americans three generations after their ancestors came over are still like really proud of that particular identity right so so I think there's a it, it's a phenomenon of affection that goes deeper than that, that you see across a lot of different things. So in preparation for this episode, I just started thinking a lot about what patriotism meant to me. And I think that the first and foremost thing that I feel is almost a responsibility. The responsibility that I feel to America is very similar to the responsibility that I would feel towards, for example, a really, really good friend in the sense that I do have a responsibility to support a friend, to try and uplift a friend, but I also think that I have a responsibility to keep friends accountable. And so I'm listening to you and hearing you say affection, and I think that, that yeah, that I guess responsibility is a form of affection. So maybe I do feel affectionate towards America. I would argue that the sense of responsibility and the sense of improvement is a distinctly different form of patriotism than the sense of like mushy gushy affection. Sure. And there, I look at them as being related and distinct, but both equally American. I think one of the things that a lot of people who feel affection towards America, who like me, but who go further and get kind of annoyed with people who criticize America, I think something that they forget is that the American tradition ever since the founding and well before that and every step of the way since then has included a very strong patriotic critique, a very strong uh, tradition of moral improvement and redemption against the real sins and flaws of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so so I think it's it, it's a different kind, but it's it's still equally there. It's like almost these two different kinds of patriotism that, to me, people seem to view as very very distinct. 
But in a lot of the resources that you sent over, a lot of the people are making an argument that these two things are both essential to, you know, good, pure patriotism. And it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like the two things are sort of this love of country, like, which to me feels kind of like that mushy gushy what you were mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of like, yo, I fucking love America and I'm proud to be an American. And then there's this other side, love of a co- the country's ideals. To me, that connects more to the holding your country accountable, trying to make changes, trying to improve it, which feels less mushy-gushy and feels more logical and almost operational. You know, I, I see that a lot. I think it can also exist in a reverse kind of order, too. I think it's very possible for somebody to have a very strong conception of the ideals without really thinking too deeply about them and and with like like somebody who has the words freedom on their lips all the time who doesn't particularly get politically activated at all but who really is deep in on the heritage kind of side of stuff right so i think it can it can exist in 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 both ways according to the temperament of of the person how do you conceive of that patriotism as being different from nationalism well, for one thing, um, I don't have a reflexive opposition to the term nationalism. Um, and actually, if, like, if we're just talking about uh, a practical political standpoint, you could probably call me a nationalist on two or three axes of, uh, of policy in terms of just like, uh, like questions about trade, questions about the regulation of immigration, questions about uh, foreign policy, stuff like that. You know, um, I do think that there's, in particular, the question of ethno-nationalism starts to hit at really, really important differences between uh, what I've kind of described and what we've kind of discussed as like idealistic and heritage-based American patriotism and a kind of blood-based kind of, uh, kind of chauvinistic uh, people like me who have this kind of blood like me um, are superior, right? Um, and I think the the... And there's also kinds of nationalism that don't go that far that still can get pernicious, right? Um, And so I think uh, to to get back to your point, what's the difference between patriotism and nationalism, though? It seems to me that patriotism is more more based on the feelings and nationalism is more based on the policies and the kind of political questions involved in what are we trying to trying to support or protect right and that can have very good reasonings and backdrops and it can also have very bad reasonings and backdrops and so that's one of the reasons i think the term is uh, an important one to always qualify no matter what you're talking about on it yeah so in preparation for this podcast i was just asking a lot of my friends what they thought of patriotism and a lot of the responses that I got automatically hit on nationalism. Mm -hmm. It seems like people tend to sort of intertwine the two. So do you think that they're intertwined inherently? I think they're intertwined to the degree that patriotism is usually expressed towards the nation. And uh, the nation is something for which policy is, uh, policies for it, People will describe them as patriotic sometimes, even if that's not the most accurate descriptor. Um, I think it's very possible, though, for people who are not particularly nationalist on like trade policy or on 
uh, something like uh, the curriculum of education or something like that to be very patriotic. Um, so there's a link, but it's not a hard and fast link that binds them in all cases. Yeah. So when you're talking about your nationalist on those various axes like trade, <laughs> are you basically you're much more like protectionist? America should come first. But I go one step further. Okay. Like I personally identify as a social conservative and economic liberal. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, good luck finding more people like me. There's a few more of them uh, out there nowadays than there have been in the past, but uh, it's still a relatively rare self-descriptor. Right. So when I say uh, economic nationalism, like part of it's stuff about trade, part of it is stuff about foreign policy. But there's also a domestic component, too, in that like every citizen of the United States of America should have access to various economic rights. Right. We can talk about healthcare. We can talk about education. We can talk about uh, the social safety net. But I think uh, the, some of the greatest American nationalists like Franklin Roosevelt in my reading and Theodore Roosevelt in my reading, even to some degree Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy, though they lived in a time that these have been kind of already uh, institutionalized, had nationalizing ideals about the notion that the nation has a duty to each member of the nation and expanding the number of Americans who have access to that kind of thing, right? So there's, so, so I say that to, to say that there is a policy component to it, but it's very possible to not have any particularly strong feeling of affection for your country and still support all those things. I, I think a lot of socialists who are true to uh, socialist principles are not particularly uh, patriotic just because their sense of loyalty is too a class idea rather than to a national idea, but they often wind up being really good economic nationalists because they support a lot of the same policies. Yeah. So I guess in like, but it's talking about the history piece, right? Mm -hmm. I honestly don't have a particularly strong appreciation for history in the sense like the only recent, actually the only book that's a history book that I have felt like was actually useful for my life was the was the book that I talk about all the time, Sapiens, which is the I don't know if you've read it. Are you? I have not your read it, but I'm familiar with uh, Mr. Hariri and many of the critiques of him. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But that that's that's really good to know. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so he doesn't really talk about history in the same right. like he's talking about human history. Right. So a lot of it is involving science and mm -hmm. you know uh, sociology and stuff like that. So the it's genre not just is called big history, right? Or I have no it, idea. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's definitely like he, you know, very all-encompassing. Yeah. And then, you know, he's trying to also project into the future and talk about, okay, now that we have talked about everything in the past, how can we use that to predict what's going to go on with technology, with CRISPR, with, you know, genetic engineering, that kind of stuff. Um, but the reason why that book felt so relevant to me was because, you know, he was able to do that with it, right? He was able to say, okay, here are some like really foundational things that we can like look at these trends in history and say, how can we apply that to the future? And with things like American history, which is a lot of, you know, kind of what are, is, is, is the foundation of a lot of patriotism, especially I think in the political context, right? It feels very irrelevant to me, right? It feels so like, you know, when, when people 
talk about the founding fathers and this is what they wanted and why they founded this country and you know this is what they put in the constitution those types of things it to me it just feels like we're living in a world that changes so fast that even though it was only you know we're a relatively young country those things feel so like when people make those appeals it feels very out of touch to me right like I mean guns is the one that I think most people talk about as being like okay obviously the context of guns with respect you know in the late 1700s is totally different from the context of guns today but even with respect to other things right like just in terms of how fast information travels and just like you know the context is so different so I'm curious as to I guess making the case for what you think is the value of having that history and that baseline and that maybe like national narrative? Well, I'll answer that, but there's a point I want to make about the conception of history you outlined first real quick. Yeah. Um, so Yuval Noah Hariri, I believe, is an Israeli historian, if I'm thinking about this right. Yeah. So, um, but I would make the argument that in a lot of ways, the kind of, uh, the kind of, technocratically optimistic faith in progress and faith in human potential and faith in human unlimitedness uh, may well be something that all societies at all times have had some aspect for. But I think a lot of people would agree with me in that, in suggesting that it's a very uniquely American thing to make it part of the, the basic creed and understanding of how society works. You know, there's been ideas of perpetual progress before uh, American, uh, before the American dream and all that kind of stuff. But the great works of science fiction that, that had a like continually rising standard of living and people going out to the stars, achieving the depths of scientific understanding, all that kind of stuff is uh, is maybe it's pr it's probably not rooted to the American dream but it probably does find more fertile soil than it does in all other places in America. And I think that's one of the reasons why American patriotism, having multiple uh, forms of existence, being able to be both an idealistic thing and a heritage appreciation thing, uh, that's one of the reasons I think it's, it's so dynamic is that it's able to take that basic human longing for transcendence and eternity and make it part of the American civil religions in themselves as well. He talks about how there's this fundamental link between the scientific revolution and imperialism, right? And this notion that if you look at cartographic history, like the history of what maps looked like throughout history, right? There was a long period of time in which the maps were full because we thought that we knew everything, right? And if you don't know the answer to something, you go to your priest, right? And, and you know, he'll come up with something to tell you. If basically at that moment when we started the beginning of the scientific revolution, the maps started getting holes in them and becoming more blank because we were starting to acknowledge actually there's stuff out there that we don't know and that was the impulse behind want like wanting to go you know find India and and you know explore more right they're like people were not as motivated to go do that and use their vast like national like you know resources to go and I mean it's kind of a crazy risk 
right? Like if you have that much money, why would you ever send it, you know, send people on these like, you know, expeditions, right? And that is kind of part and parcel of that whole, you know, what you're talking about, right? You know, this notion of like people being um, able to find out sort of the truth as opposed to, and, and, and thinking that there's things out there that you don't know and could find out through science, right? That is part of that whole, like even before people were coming to America, it was like part of the impulse of why people came to America in the first place. Let me uh, take this down even one more further step and like who are three great American scientists who you hear about all the time. Benjamin Franklin, literally one of the founding fathers, right? Uh, Albert Einstein, who was not born an American, but became as much an American as anybody else when he came over here and started working for Uncle Sam. And Thomas Edison, who uh, by all my, like, to, to, the, to, to the degree that I understand him, Edison really took everybody else's ideas and uh, made himself look like he was the one who had come up with them. But in a way, that's almost what's so American about America, too, you know, is that in that it amalgamates so many other things in a kind of hustling kind of sense, <laughs> you know, kind of, and sometimes kind of it can disingenuous kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of like a con sometimes. But then again, even the best cons like wind up becoming the real realities as well sometimes, too, you mm -hmm. know, um, Wait, I just want to interject one thing. I did not realize that Uncle Sam was a real person. I thought that was a fictional no, thing. He, what? What are you talking about then? So I, I said uh, <laughs> Einstein was working for Uncle Sam. I meant the Einstein government. was working for the United States government. Oh. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, Isabel. You're not you're not the first person who has thought that in our long history as Americans. Wow, that's so. drastically embarrassing for you. <laughs> this 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 might be a good reason for you to go start studying American history. Please though. keep this in. Don't take this out. Put this make this the intro. This part right here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. Okay, so what was I gonna say? Shit. Um, Okay, so in what ways um, do you think, because it seems like you were saying that um, history is important because embedded in American history is sort of this uh, desire for like, mm -hmm. you know, human opportunity and to expand and to like learn all this shit. Um, but we also seem like we all agree that that's also kind of just human nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where do you think, where, where's the step that goes from human nature to patriotic? to you yeah that's an interesting question that's an interesting question well well let me put it this way um uh so all of us are to some degree people of color right yep i mean i will never use that phrase on myself because i don't think i deserve it a lot but my mom is from the philippines right so like i have at least a slight experience in that and uh we all have a kind of culinary tradition that we get all nostalgic for sometimes right to some degree. I mean, we were talking a little bit about the, the whole hog barbecues out sure. in North Carolina. You Absolutely. Guys do. And that's one of the great, like of all the great things African-Americans have done for America, barbecue is one of the greatest right. of them. Yeah. You know? I mean, like our, our culinary contributions to this country have been just out and outrageous. You, tur <laughs> you turned us from fish and chips, Englishmen to people who knew what spice was, you right. know? So for thank sure. you. Um, and then, uh, so you're Chinese American, right, Isabel? So there, so, um, there, there's a culinary tradition there. I'm Filipino. My mom is from the Philippines. And so like, there's a, um, a, uh, we make adobo all the time. We make pancit and lupia. And in the 
smells of food in the 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 kind of knowledge that yeah my mom could make this food better than those people at Walmart can kind of thing there's a kind of sense of belonging there right so um when i think about people like lewis and clark you know are lewis and clark any particularly different than any of the european explorers who traveled through australia or africa or asia no. around the same time probably not but they are like kind of uh, Ours, in a way that those explorers in other parts, and for that matter, the Chinese explorers who sailed around the uh, the Indian Ocean in the 1400s and uh, and explorers from every society around the world, they kind of meet meet and match that kind of human uh, human exploration, uh, and and they fill that human niche. But they're not ours in the same way that Lewis and Clark and John Wesley Powell and Neil Armstrong are ours. You know, so so I think. I compare them to food because there's a it it really does hit an irrational just kind of um, yeah that's where I grew up kind of feeling it you know and and with um when when with with Lewis and Clark too I guess it it might hit me a little bit more strongly than it hits other people because in my personal formative years um, my family was living was uh, doing road trips routinely out west. And so, like, some of the very first American names I ever heard were Lewis and Clark because of the national parks out there that we were visiting. You know, that does stuff to people with a kind of, like, romanticist kind of temperament about how to, how to see things, you know. And it's people with romanticist kind of te- kinds of temperaments who go forth and write songs like America the Beautiful that everybody suddenly is like, oh, it's a, such a beautiful song that makes me love my country, you know. So, um, so I think there's a real emotional standpoint there that um, that takes these universal human experiences and makes the unique ones to us like kind of make us think of our own, you know? Yeah, and I think that what you're getting at here is something that we're going to be hitting on a lot, which is sort of this like collectivism mm-hmm. sense that comes with patriotism. And it seems so odd because collectivism creates patriotism but also patriotism or creates collectivism yeah right yeah um but to me the thing that i was thinking about while you were saying all that is right so like obviously patriotism patriotism is american in our context but patriotism just means love for your country so anyone that isn't from american also can also be patriotic so you know anyone I guess this is me saying that I need to sort of get out of the framework of what makes like America especially patriotic because that isn't the question that we're asking today, right? It's well, it's worth it's worth thinking about though because now now for what it's worth, I don't really consider myself to be an American exceptionalist, um, and I I don't think there's very much that makes Americans distinct from the rest of humankind. Aside from maybe the fact that at key points in our history, we were freer to build these institutions than other societies have been at the same points in time. And we were perhaps more powerful for it, perhaps more hypocritical for it. Um, But uh, there's nothing genetically different between Americans and everybody else. And culturally, everybody else uh, is just the same possible kind of uh, kind of. Uh, box of contradictions that we are, right? Um, for me, it's more about my personal connection and the kind of awe that I see in the fact that uh, it's all there, you know? So, if I that mean, makes sense. Yeah. Well, here's one of the things that I think often is basically the, the thing that differentiates 
liberals and conservatives in this realm is that, you know, there's this appeal to like looking at history, right? And like one of the people we were reading was talking about like, if America just had a more, like, I feel like the implication is that if America just had a more, was more in touch with its history and we had a more robust emphasis on history, we would support America more, right? And we would okay. have a more, okay. like, and it's a, like the fundamental, like, okay, you know, is America good or is America bad? Right. Like, you know, there's a whole like, oh, America's great or America has always sucked. You know, like everything, you know, it's built on, you know, white supremacy, Jim Crow, like, you know, women's whatever. Right. And so the historical element, I feel like you can always read positives and negatives out of anything. Right. 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 So what's your take on like, how do you like is that what you think the value of having that historical background is, right? Because, like, you know, no matter what, you can always, like, yeah, get whatever you want out of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the you've said everything that's important to say on that, actually. Um, there's a lot of people, particularly my fellow conservatives, uh, who will suggest that, like, oh, we should uh, train our students in American history so that they'll appreciate it and so that they won't be angry about it or whatever. But more often than not, the more you study history, the more stuff to be angry about you find, you know? <laughs> and also the more stuff to be appreciative about you find. Like, it's human nature being what it is, like, there's always going to be a mixed bag of stuff, like you're, you're suggesting. Um, and for what it's worth, I don't think uh, I don't think teaching history necessarily will have the effect or does have the effect of making people appreciative. I think sometimes it does, but I think that's more about the temperament of people who learn about it than about the process of education itself. You know, because like what is propaganda indoctrination to someone might seem like just clearer than truth kind of rays of light to somebody else. You know. I think the reason it's important to know the history is so that you can see just how human people are, so that you can see that what you do now in this particular moment in 2019 does matter for history. It, tell, it says it will say volumes to your descendants, it will speak volumes to future historians and all that kind of stuff, just as what people were doing in 1781 speaks volumes to us now and stuff like that. And, and I also think that that kind of awareness that we're all human can also help people to be both less mythical and romantic and also more charitable towards historical figures as well. You know, right. seeing the press, seeing that any politician we see nowadays has a bajillion pressures on them. A politician a hundred years ago had just as many pressures on them as well. You know, it just helps to make for a more realistic understanding of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that the American duality of patriotism, whereby you have some people who are intent, inclined to feel romantic about it and other people who are inclined to feel reformist and principled about it, they'll read their kind of ideology into the past no matter what, but it's better to have an accurate reading of the past uh, than to have uh, a merely like uh, a past that serves your ideas alone, mm -hmm. you know? So it seems like you're articulating history as sort of a grounding baseline. I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. And it, it, it encourages a kind of sobriety 
that we Americans are not always known for. Right. You know? And I, as we're moving through this conversation, I feel like almost everything that I think about what comprised patriotism and its reasoning for comprising patriotism is kind of being turned on its head because coming into this, I'm like, people must think that history is important for patriotism because of a, a very rah-rah emotionalness, right? Um, and obviously you're just one guy and a very you know studied and educated dude as it comes to patriotism. Um, but I do think it makes a lot of sense to sort of view history as a necessity for a grounding point. I don't know. What do you think, Isabel? I still don't really get why. I, I mean, like, really, what's the... I mean, okay, there's the, there's the... Is it useful? And then it's sort of like, okay, can you also feel... Like, America is such a diverse place, mm -hmm. right? I feel mm -hmm. like if... It, it's so difficult to bring... And I also think that that's, like, one of the really big difficulties that like because democrats have to appeal to a much more diverse uh pool than you know republicans do i also think that's one of the difficulties that is much and just generally because america is more diverse than you know a lot of other countries right coming up with some way to unify people and have some kind of like national narrative or party narrative or even just like on a more local level like a state narrative right is so important maybe because there's no other thing to really connect people because everyone is coming from a different background from a different place at different times well we all have multiple backgrounds too right so every human group that you might want to mobilize has dozens hundreds thousands millions of people but each of those millions of people has at least half a dozen and probably more identities that they're in too you know um, where they're from, where their adopted home was, where their ancestors came from, what profession they're in, where they went to school, uh, what they think about politics, what they think about America. You know, there's so many crossing levels. And I think the beautiful thing about uh, these narratives, which we could call patriotism for the nationwide level, you could probably call it something else for a more local level or for like... Uh, I don't know if anybody gets all mushy about Fannie Mae, but if they do, I'm sure there's like Oh my God. Like a, there are so many people who've been working at Fannie Mae for like 10 years, 30 years, like yeah. their whole life, you know, who literally grew up like- And they have their narratives about it. You absolutely. Know, they have, this is why I love the- Well, so my, my dad was in the Navy for 30 years, right? Yeah. And my dad, like I, I grew up with my dad telling us stories of the, the heroism of John Paul Jones and Stephen Decatur and Oliver Hazard Perry, people who nobody knows about nowadays, but like people who are still very important in that particular tradition, right? And so the thing about these narratives is they provide a common sense of identity and a common sense of transcendent meaning, like this is why we're not just any other group. This is why we're somebody important. Maybe not necessarily better than everybody else, but this is why we're distinct, right? And I really think that the talent of anybody who's good at political messaging is being able to take those kinds of uh, messages and unite people around those kinds of messages. I actually think the Democrats running for president now in 2020 are saying a different kind of patriotism, but just as nationalistic a patriotism as the Republicans were in 2016 with uh, with their whole, with their own kind of thing. It's just in a very different way, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking specifically about Trump. I'm talking about the the whole field, you know. 
uh, speaking uh, about like their own, uh, like just the, the sum total of what was coming up. Normally, like the stereotype that you hear people talking about in American politics today is that Republicans talk about patriotism and Democrats talk about economics. You know, I don't think that's true. I think both talk about patriotism, but it's just different languages of patriotism as people see them, you know. I think so. it just comes down to nationalism and any of those other isms at any, uh, you know, at any scope, right? Whether it's like, you know, national, regional, whatever, is just basically trying to define the in-group, right? Yeah. And there's so yeah. many, as you say, different ways to define the in-group based on your various different backgrounds that you have, right? That figuring out how to prime people to, to have that particular in-group that you want right. to be most salient, right, is right. is key that's literally like the key to elections but also the key to how like after the elections laws are passed institutions are built rules are written and ways of life are sometimes preserved and sometimes promoted and other times trashed and other times uh people's dignity is assaulted you know and this is one of the reasons i think narratives are important is because a lot of people who study politics just look at it as like interest groups with clashing interests which is partly true, but part of it is identity groups with clashing identities, you know, and just the sheer overlap in all of that, I think, makes for fascinating, fascinating uh, narratives, but also just fascinating stuff to study. So. So it seems like history, I think that I can buy that history is important context for context sake. And yeah, it's yeah. important to have just background information on whatever you're fucking with, if it's America. Or whatever, but I'm also wondering if, you know, can can patriotism be powerful without historical context? You know, if we can push a button and remove the historical context, would you know would people have anything to band together around? Which I think is kind of what we were talking about clashing identities mm -hmm. because America is so diverse. And I think I, I went into this conversation sort of on Isabel's side, not really seeing the usefulness of historical context but now i'm feeling like now i think i'm understanding why, why some people think it's pivotal because it gives people something to band around so otherwise it gives groups of people that are otherwise very different something to band around well it's just kind of like institutional memory at any level like on my ultimate team like i'm an ultimate frisbee player and we had very much of microcosm of the exact same thing that's going on at a national level of like there's stories of like you know players that even maybe you didn't know overlap with them so like they're kind of like legendary now and it, it you create all of these uh cultures around you know any group that you're in right and so that in and of itself having that you know institutional memory is kind of what creates that it is part of what defines that group in a way but i do think that coming onto the team, even if it's brand new, right, and doesn't have that kind of institutional memory, wouldn't necessarily detract from the feelings of, you know, bonding that you get from just going through something with a set other group of people. DeAndre, that's a really interesting question. It's well, a really, what really did I ask? Huh? What did I ask? If, uh, if it's possible for oh, there to one. be patriotism without history. Yeah. Got it. Um, Isabel, I think that, like, in the case of the ultimate team, if it's brand new, people are attracted to it because they want to be the, the people, the founders, they want to help set yeah. that history, yeah. you know? So the history might not exist, but they're excited to have legacy. When you look at any revolutionary movement, which by the way, the only nationalism 
nationalism is not the only thing that people have felt strongly for. People have also felt very strongly for revolutionary movements too, both good and bad. Sure. And uh, you could probably argue that uh, that revolutionary movements that have that don't necessarily have a strong history but do have a strong set of principles or a strong theory of how things are supposed to work or a strong vision of utopia might have a similar kind of unifying force to uh, what history does for nations and empires and uh, localities and towns and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I would have to think more on that because there's some problems with that, partly because it's always in motion in, in a revolutionary situation. But uh, I don't know. It's You know, I'm glad we had this conversation because now I'm going to be thinking about that for the next couple of weeks. So. Well, I think one of the... This ties into the article that is called Resistance Patriotism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? By Mr. Kendi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about how the real, you know, or or, or basically the, the new way that he's proposing that we look at patriotism is by saying, look, if you care about um, the patriotism of America in terms of caring about its ideals, right, then activists are the true patriots because they are fighting for freedom in the same way the founding fathers were fighting for freedom, right? They're doing the same thing. All of these people are fighting for freedom, even if it's against the state that originally, the, you know, that the founding fathers founded, right? And he sees that as being like, you know, the, the value of it, right? Of the, you know, having that emphasis of freedom as being the thing that defines the patriotism from what I understood. Mm-hmm. And you said, and you said that you kind of disagree with him. So I'm curious what, what you take issue with. Well, so, uh, I think, uh, Ibram Kendi's, uh, argument, uh, is a kind of like almost Thomas Paine style argument in that the, um, the the nation is only good so long as it has a set of ideals that it is constantly striving for and there's nothing really good outside of those ideals if there's uh if those uh if, if there are things uh going against those ideals um then it's not just that they are that that it's imperfect it's that that's literally not something you can be patriotic about right um And my take on it is that that is very much a way to express American patriotism. Um, I think you can look back across history. You can look at William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. You can look at Alice Paul and Susan B. Anthony. You can look at any number of the movements that rose up in the 1960s and changed America into the America we know today, right? Um, And they all, I think really did love their country and really did want to support the ideals of it. But I also don't think that that's the only way to do it. So I it th- sounds like you are pro what he's terming resistance patriotism. I would hesitate to say I'm pro resistance patriotism for two reasons. Okay. Number one is that I would never be in a resistance style patriotism. You know, for various reasons, I don't go to protests, you know, um, just uh, out of a personal kind of temperament. Um, and so, like, I, I don't think it would be fair to uh, to equate myself um, with people who do put themselves out there on that. Um, but then on another level, too, I think there's a kind of sacrificial patriotism and a kind of affectionate patriotism 
that are distinct from the resistance style of patriotism. Sacrificial I, in the sense that you are like martyring yourself. Is that what you mean by sacrificial? What do you mean? In the well, yes. I mean, why is John McCain a patriotic figure? You know, mm-hmm. um, why is uh, the former Senate uh, Speaker Pro Tem of the Senate uh, Daniel Inouye, uh, who whose family got sent to the to the internment camps in uh, in World War II, and then he volunteered to go fight for his country and got his arm blown off by the Nazis, kind of thing, right? Um, why, why, why is that patriotic? It's, it's not the same patriotism in the same way that resistance is patriotism, right. you know? So like so, some value of putting yourself out there for, for a cause, even if it's not a perfect cause. Right. And even if it falls dramatically short of the ideals. So for me, the, 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 the definition of patriotism is, uh, it, my understanding of patriotism is something that Ibram Kendi's understanding of patriotism is a part of of it but i think his understanding is that his is the true patriotism and the others are not the true patriotism whereas my understanding of it is that there's at least two maybe three maybe even four distinct types of patriotism that you can hold um that can lead you to vote for donald trump or it can lead you to vote for bernie sanders uh it just expresses the complicated nature of american identity sure you know uh so that's not to waffle, but I guess it is waffling in a, in a sense because it's not choosing a final answer. But I, I think that that's fundamentally the thing that fascinates me about America is that it's not just a heritage with no ideals, but it's not just a set of ideals that uh, doesn't like its heritage. You know, it's mm-hmm. both of those things and they hate each other, but they need each other, you know? So, so you think... Uh, defining patriotism by resistance patriotism is is just one sided. I wouldn't say one sided because that makes it makes it sound like I'm uh, saying that they're being blinded. You know, I don't think they're being blinded. Sure, I think sure. I think they're they're living in a way that people like me can't ever fully understand. I think they're living something very real of the American patriotic dream. Sure, um, but I I think that the American patriotic dream and the American project itself encompasses much more than any particular conception of it that we human beings have come up with, you know? So mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to love America to be a patriot? No. Um, well, I think, I think, I think you do have to love America, but I will grant everybody the greatest possible leeway to define what they mean by loving America. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like tough love and like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yo, well, fuck well, this place, but I'm like, I'm here, so I got to make it better. Yeah, yeah, That's exactly. Well, there's that one James Baldwin quote that everybody loves to share. The, um, uh, I, I love my country and that's why I feel so free to criticize it. You know, right. um, that, that I just butchered that quote, but it's, it, it's a line that a lot of uh, protesters will use and they're exactly right. They're exactly right. Protesters have made America what it is just as much as labor unions have, just as much as military officers have, just as much as businessmen have. And it's a very complicated, uh, multifaceted thing. The, the, the case that drives this most home for me right now is the question of uh, illegal immigration. Um, and the, the, the lives and liberties of the 11 million or so people who are living in the United States uh, without a visa, right? Um, and it seems to me that to the degree that there's absolute powerlessness in American society, society they, they're there, you know? 
Um, now, at a purely legalistic level, I don't think that there's a particular responsibility to them beyond just basic human dignity that the United States of America has. On a moral level, it's a lot more complicated than that because they have been living among us and are oftentimes as American, more American than a lot of us native-born Americans, you know? So it seems to me that the immigrants' rights movement is doing work not dissimilar to what, uh, in some ways, what the women's rights movement did, in some ways what the abolitionist and civil rights movements did in previous uh, centuries. So. You said that you don't necessarily feel that America owes them anything besides um, like basic human dignity. So is that because those people aren't legally Americans to you? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so that's like, and so that's where you draw the line of you are an American when you are recognized by the United States government as an American citizen. When you're an American citizen, yeah. Right. And so that's because for me, citizenship has a, uh, a sacred, almost spiritual quality to it, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, uh, that is almost similar, I guess, to how strongly like some sects of Protestants feel when they're born again. You know, Um, like to me, like the like uh, American citizenship is a a uh, a thing like that, you know. Um, But it's complicated for me for the way I think about it, because obviously a lot of people who are here illegally either didn't ask to be here. um, It just like the trends of history pushed them here. Right. The reason it's complicated for me is less about um, wanting like a limited number of Americans or a limited number of immigrants to become Americans or anything like that. And more that um, because of the unique situation the United States is in uh, ideologically, right? Like we have this universalism, but we also have this deep tradition as well, right? There's, it seems to me that there is a tendency in America to, um, uh, to, to, to go overboard with things, right? And there, it, it just seems to me that if we don't get our immigration policy right, if we don't answer those questions, what is an American? What do you need to do to be an American? What is the just way to help people become Americans? Um, you potentially stand to lose a lot of the value of that citizenship. You know? yeah. And for what it's worth, I think most Americans don't particularly value their citizenship unless they stop and think about it really deeply and consider it, you know, and even then not all of them would have need to value their citizenship just because, uh, there are so many problems in this country as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but I guess at a political level, that's one of the reasons I consider myself a patriot and a nationalist is that, uh, solving these problems, not because they're problems to be solved, but because there are so many of our countrymen and women, uh, suffering, you know, there are so many Americans not in particularly good situations right now, and many of those things are based on structural problems that can be fixed by politics and policy. Uh, as an American, don't you have a duty to help a brother out, you know, to help your fellow citizens live the American dream in a way that uh, you want your descendants to be able to live in a way that we as reasonably well-off people have had the chance to.
So like socially, especially as a young conservative, does it suck? <laughs> like, like, especially living in DC, right? Where you're constantly in the minority, right? One of the nice things about uh, being in Better Angels and learning all the skills of Better Angels, of like having depolarizing conversations and stuff like that, is you at least double your dating pool prospects. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, big thanks, Luke. It's been dope having you, man. Um, I think that a lot of people in my space, um, like my like very progressive space, um, don't view conservatives as people that are willing to have conversations. And um, I think that to some degree, I also have that sort of like inclination in me, even though I'm from the South, I'm around a lot of conservatives. I have been around a lot of conservatives for my entire life. I've had some really good conversations with people, but uh, I hope that like your presence on the podcast can sort of maybe shift some opinions, but that might be wishful thinking. Yeah. Thanks so much, Luke. Uh, it's been great. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I'm the villain pod. Peace out, dude.